Well, earlier one of the songs said, uh, Unstoppable God. And then now we just sang a song that my son asked me about the other day. He says, Dad, why does this song have this line that you haven't failed me yet? Does he believe that God is going to fail him? I said, uh, son, that song, I mean, that, that lyric is written directly for the singer. And that we know it to be true, but yet we still ask it in our hearts, don't we? Well, I know you came through in the past, Lord. I know you have the ability to do it. I know that you can do it. I know you have the power to do it. I'm just not sure you will this time. And so we keep that yet open in our minds because uh, we, we wonder. It's not an attack on his character. We trust his character. We just trust whether or not he cares as deeply as we want him to for us. Is there a yet for you? Is there a yet for your family? Is there a yet for your job? Is there a yet for maybe it's some type of healing that you may need, be it physical in nature, be it emotional in nature, mental in nature, certainly spiritual in nature? Is there, is there a yet that you have right now in your mind? It, there's something that you desperately need God to do, and you know that he can. You know he has the power to. He has the character to do it. He even may have the track record of doing it. He may have done it for other people, but you're not sure he's going to do it yet again for you. I want to I encourage you to, to um, uh, hone it, hang in, hone in, dive in, whatever it is that this morning of all that we have read thus far in Romans 12, um, this is going to be the most shocking and, and the one that we say, are, are you serious, Lord? This right here, this is actually what you're calling us to. And I, and I want you to know, I've got a, a very um, interesting task this morning in front of me. I've got to figure out how to walk this balance um, in here of letting the passage carry its weight and yet uh, w- without really providing for you the balance of the rest of the scriptures. Now, we're in Romans 12, and today is the last week that we're just sitting in this one chapter. I, I hope and pray that you have been able to read it over and over again. Again, a man years ago challenged me to memorize this chapter, and memorize, memorize James chapter 1, and it has been uh, uh, proven to be so very, very helpful for me in my uh, pilgrimage. And we've made our way through it, and, and right here is leading to the end. And I will tell you, I think in some ways, this is really what Paul was trying to lead to all along. I think this transition that takes place here in Romans 12, the, the great therefore, the therefore of all therefores in this book, I think he was saying all of these things that God has done on our behalf, it's all leading to a reason. There's a purpose for it. And then you will see, uh, while all of what we've read thus far points us to Jesus very clearly. Nothing will more dramatically point to Jesus than what we'll read today. And again, I, I, if, if you just read this section, you say, man, that is me. I don't need any help with this whatsoever. Then praise God, you're alive. This is, this is challenging. We've said just a couple things all along. Religious followers offer things to God. Followers of Jesus offer themselves to God. Religious followers direct others to work for God. Followers of Jesus minister grace to others through God. Now today, this is what we're going to say. 
Satan uses some people of the world to dissuade the people of God. Jesus uses the people of God to influence some people of the world. Let me say it again. Satan uses some people of the world to dissuade the people of God. Jesus uses the people of God to influence some people of the world. Go all the way back into the scriptures and what was God's plan all along? He made his promise made known to a man named Abraham. He had said it earlier on to Adam. He talked about this seed and then this the seed of the, this woman was going to crush the head of the serpent. He's going to defeat the work of the devil. But he makes it clear over here to this guy named Abraham. He says, through you, I want you to know the whole world is going to be blessed. Do you hear that? The whole world is going to be blessed through you, Abraham. And so it's not just his physical family. There would be a numbers of, uh, of descendants that would come. Uh, but it was more about a spiritual issue. It was about blessing a world that at some points, many points, wants nothing to do with God. And yet God was going to call his people to come and to bless the world. Now, what did Jesus do when he got here? Jesus blessed the world in the ultimate sense. So what is God going to call us to today? Through this passage right here, I'm confident he's going to, God is going to call you to bless the world. And specifically, not just those who like you, but those who are actively opposing you, God says, go bless them. Now, if you do this naturally, you're weird. If you have your Bibles, you can open with me to Romans chapter 12. We'll finish up reading here. And in honor of God's words, would you stand as we read together the last a few verses of this. Now, we skipped over verse uh, 14 of last week because we felt it belonged uh, better with this week, and so we'll do that. We'll go 14 and then make our way down to 17 through the rest of the chapter. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You may be seated. Paul is finishing up. He's given us instructions in here early on. He talks to us about making ourselves as living sacrifices, not dead sacrifices that were offered in the Old Testament, but living sacrifices. It's our very selves. It's not just our physical body. It's the entirety of who we are that is saying, God, I'm yours. No aspect of me or my life is not yours. It's all handed over. It's to be used by you whenever you want it to be used, however you want it to be used, in whichever way you want it to be used. Even to whatever degree you want it to be used. After that, we talked a little bit, talked a little bit about the specific ways that God has designed us. He has created us. He said that you guys, none of us, not a single person here is independent, truly independent. We can't do this thing called the Christian life we can't do this thing called ministry. We can't bless the world without one another. God gave you some gifts and talents. He didn't give to me. And I need you. And you need me. 
We all need each other in this process. So these, the things that we do, just minister them freely to others, asking nothing really in return. Last week, we talked about love and the ways in which God has called us to love the church. Love the people of God. We've made this statement before. There are many people who are going to disappoint you in life, but no one will wound you as deeply as the church is going to wound you. I assure you of that. And no one will love you like the church will love you. So don't give up. Keep moving forward. Realize that everyone else is just as messed up as you are. Love the church. Now, when Paul wrote this, I assure you, the eyeballs of the people would have popped out of their heads. They said, I just want to make sure, Paul, you, you really meant what you said. Now, these are the folks that were coming to faith from the Gentile world, not those that were in the Jewish world. Now, the church had already been gathering here. And when Paul makes this first statement here in verse 14, I want you to notice Paul does not quote Jesus. Even though it is a quote from Jesus, Paul does not cite Jesus when he lists this work. Now, there's a couple of reasons that that might be true. It could be that he doesn't cite Jesus because he didn't know Jesus was the one who said these words. There are some modern-day theologians who believe that, believe that Paul was unfamiliar with Jesus' writings, and there's some coincidental things in their writings, but by and large, they're two vastly different people getting across two different messages. Um, I categorically deny that. I think that the author of the Scripture is God, and he was carefully putting together all this. I think the reason Paul didn't say it, didn't cite Jesus, meaning he didn't give direct credit to Jesus, is because the early church heard this unbelievable demand so often, and it was so shocking, they had to remind each other. I believe they knew it, was, it needed no quotation. Everybody knew this was coming directly from Jesus. This was a, a standard amongst the church when someone curses, you don't curse. When someone persecutes you, don't persecute them back. Instead, bless them. Bless those who persecute you. Now, I, I wish I could tell you how complicated it is in the original language when Paul writes this. Here's the way it probably should be read if you're reading from the original language. It probably should go something much more like this. Bless those who persecute you. He means what he says. Now, I want to try to provide initially just a tad bit of balance so that we can get this out of the way. Okay, and here's what I mean. Here's the balance we've got to walk this morning. If we were to take this principle, isolate it, pull it out of the context of the rest of the scriptures, then we say, uh, every time someone brings harm to you, you are only to bless them. You're to be passive in the process. We're to do other things that Jesus said. Remember, if somebody's going to ask you to go uh, a mile, then you go with them too. If they're going to take one part of your clothing, you give them another part of your clothing. If they're going to insult you, you turn away, let them insult you again. If, if we were to take that and isolate it, not keep it in the context of the Scripture, we would let people run all over us all the time, and criminals would get away with murder. So hear this, here's the balance. If there is a, an individual who breaks into my home and it is clear that he has bad intentions for my wife and my children, let me tell you what I don't think this passage is saying. That I should say, Mr. Mugger, I would like to bless you. Are there some things that I can provide for you? In fact, after you're done harming my family, 
if you'll sit down, I'd like to cook a meal for you. I don't think that's what the scripture's saying. If that individual comes into my house, I have a baseball bat. I will use that baseball bat as often as I need to in order to harm this individual so this individual will not bring more harm upon my wife and kids. Now, does anybody find that ungodly? I hope not. What it's not saying is that we never under any circumstances should apply personal responsibility, if you will. All right, so let's not go crazy with this, but let's keep in the context what he's writing. Let the weight of the scripture speak. Specifically speaking, when someone is coming to persecute you because of your faith, because you're associated with Jesus, the most natural thing in the world to do is to figure out a way to retaliate against that individual. And the scriptures say, don't do that. In fact, do the opposite, bless them in the process. Now, I want you to hear this, okay? I'm going to read this. A, a tremendous mind, Douglas Moo, great commentator. He wrote this in the book of Romans. It won't take long, but please hear this. In the scriptures, blessing is typically associated with God. He possesses and dispenses all blessings. To bless one's persecutors, therefore, is to call on God to bestow his favor upon them. Its opposite is, of course, cursing, asking God to bring disaster and or spiritual ruin on a person. By prohibiting cursing, as well as enjoining blessing, Paul stresses the sincerity and single-mindedness of the loving attitude we are to have toward our persecutors. So those who would persecute you because of your faith, because of your association with Jesus Christ, those who want to come after you, what Paul is calling us to do is what Jesus called us to do. And that is to ask God to bestow his favor upon them. How often is that your first reaction? It wasn't too terribly long ago that I was uh, speaking at a particular retreat, and uh, this doesn't happen very often. I, I mean, it, most of my interactions with the world that would not consider themselves to be followers of Jesus are, are, are pretty benign, to be honest with you. I, I don't face a whole lot of um, real persecution from, uh, from, from individuals here in America. On this particular occasion, though, I happened to be speaking at this conference, and uh, these students that were college uh, age uh, noticed that, uh, that I was one of the speakers that was there at that particular retreat. And so uh, we struck up a conversation. It was very clear that they did not consider themselves to be followers of Jesus. And so on the front end of this, it, it was just a little bit of uh, jab and just a little bit of poking. Now, I, I uh, practice a whole lot of what I just refer to uh, as, as Bubba humor, um, self-deprecating humor, in particular about being from Alabama and uneducated, blah, 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 et cetera. All that. So they had heard that that night, and so they began to just poke a little bit of fun um, at that. And then it turned a little bit more um, uh, dark. And then they began to really attack and to go uh, after some things. And um, and, and I didn't really quite know what to say on the spot because we're in a public place. This is a store. Like I, I went in for, I think, like Kool-Aid or something like that. 
And, and while I'm looking for, you know, my, my Kool-Aid, the, the, this is going on. I, I didn't quite know how to handle this. Um, so I just started praying. And when I started praying, uh, this one individual, I won't repeat it right now. It's profane and, and what it is that he said. And then he came and physically began to attack me. Now, when I say attack, it wasn't like I was on the ground and uh, being kicked and beaten like you would see in the movies. It wasn't like that. I mean, it, it was um, physical in nature, though. Now, if I didn't know what to do before this, I really didn't know what to do now. What was instinctual in me was, let me grab the biggest jar of Kool-Aid that I can and waylay him. But I just kept praying. What would you do if someone were clearly coming after you because of your faith? What do you do when you get a sense that some organization or entity or whatever it is trying to make your life difficult because of faith? Paul quotes Jesus, who gives us the standard. He says it in the Sermon on the Mount. He says at least in one other occasion that we are specifically to pray for those who persecute us. Now, some of us would like to pray exclusively and only what are called the imprecatory psalms. These are the psalms in the scripture that call down uh, call for God to bring wrath upon uh, people. So like one of these, this is, you know, David says, break the jawbone of the wicked. I, I want to pray that prayer with the person. Yes, Lord, I'm being obedient. I'm praying these prayers to you about my persecutors. But remember, he's talking about calling down God to bestow his blessings upon those who are persecuting you. How do you do that? I assure you what is not going to work is if you and I walk out of here today and say, you know what, I, the next time I'm persecuted, I'm just going to muster up the strength to pray. Do you know how I think it starts? I think it starts long before we actually ever get persecuted. I think it starts by us praying specifically for those whose hearts are not inclined towards God in the moment. But asking that God would change them, mold them, shape them. Open their eyes that they might see the beauty of who he is and respond to him in kind. I don't think it starts when we're in the moment, in the heat of the moment. I think in some ways that's probably a little too late to try and start having this attitude of God bless those who are actively against me and, and others. I, th I think it starts right now, this morning, today. Would you make a commitment? to begin praying specifically for those that are outside the faith. And that God might bestow his ultimate blessing upon them, which is his presence, the salvation of their very souls. One last thing, because the rest of this is really fleshing out what this says here. One last thing as it pertains uh, to balance. I want you to know that I am for and, and support not only through my own prayers and even some finances from time to time, but I support organizations uh, that do a good job of, of continuing to fight in the courts things like our religious liberties. 
I do not believe that this passage of Scripture is putting a halt to that. I think this is talking specifically to the way that individuals function and the way that government functions. I am so thankful there are some in our own church who every week go to bat and to say, we want to maintain many of the freedoms, the genius of this country. Paul wasn't writing to people that had the, the, the freedoms of America. And I find nothing inconsistent about those that would go and fight in the court systems to maintain various and sundry liberties uh, that we would have. Uh, but I, I think what he is calling us to is a radical kind of response that is going to draw attention. That's verse 14, devoted. I mean, I'm sorry. Uh, bless those who persecute you, bless, and do not curse. Now, the rest of this is the fleshing of this out. Verse 17, don't repay anyone evil for evil. And then he says this term, be careful to do what is right. Do not repay evil with evil. Again, this is the most natural thing for us as humans. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Isn't that what the scripture says? Once again, I think that Jesus here is, is capturing in many ways um, what was true of the Old Testament of the law of the way that governments are supposed to function. But Jesus says, you have heard it's an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I'm telling you, don't do that as an individual. Don't take vengeance into your own hands. Don't, don't try to exact something on, an, on, on another and leave that up to the civil authorities. Don't repay you. You know why? Because in the end, evil is actually going to overcome you if you try to repay evil with evil. I assure you of that. Evil will not be benign with you. Bitterness will set in, resentment will set in, and it will eat you alive. And so trying to return evil for evil is a losing game. Paul says, I want you to, to win in this. Don't return evil for evil. Okay, that's good. We know what not to do uh, here. What should we do? Look at this. Instead, he says, do be careful to give every attention to. This is a term that he uses as well in Ephesians. It, be very careful. The idea is, is the handling of a package. It, it's like handle with care, this fragile thing. Pay close attention. Look at the details. Plot it out. Think deeply about what it is that you're going to do. Be very careful to do good. Hear this. In the eyes of everybody. Not just in the eyes of believers, but in the eyes of everybody. Do the kind of good to someone that everybody in the world says, duh, that's good. Within the bounds of Scripture, you can't go outside of what it is that God has laid out for us. So we don't, we don't uh, sin in any way because the world does call sin good. And so we don't. But do what is good in the eyes of everybody. Don't do evil. Instead, Repay them with good. I've told this story before, but um, there was a, our next door neighbor had uh, uh, screamed at my children. Now, in fairness to him, my children had made their way out the back of our yard. This was back in Atlanta. They made their way to the back of the yard. And there's this, you know, it's like 30 feet of woods. And then it goes over to some other park and we walked through. But it's cool because we'd see deer go by there sometimes. So they would go out here and they started chasing this rabbit. 
And this rabbit made its way through the back of our yard, took a turn this way, goes back to the back of the neighbor's yard. And so our boys are trying to go and get this rabbit head. And this old crotchety man runs out, this pot smoking dude that my neighbor, that, that was, he just, and he just screams at my children. Now I'm not there. But it shook our boys so bad. They're very young. They came running into the house, um, shaking, and, and, and some of them uh, in tears. And so Judith uh, uh, gets the story from them, and then she just calls to let me know. And so I am now going up what is called Peachtree Industrial. There's only like 74,000 Peachtree Roads in Atlanta, Georgia. I'm going up Peachtree Industrial Boulevard trying to get home to my house. I, I'm sure I'm, I'm observing all traffic laws on the way to get there. I get home and I am ready to, I, I go straight to his door. And there is not a single pastor bone in my body at this moment. And Romans 12 is nowhere close to my mind at this time. I am ready now uh, to handle this situation uh, with, with, with my, my friend. Nobody answers. I ring again. Nobody answers. I knock. Nobody answers. I go to the back. I knock it and nobody So I go back home and I then stew uh, in my anger and, um, and no joke, um, Romans 12 comes to mind. And now I'm just ticked with God. Why did you bring this passage to my mind? Couldn't there be some other passages we could talk about right now, Lord? Now, do you know what my wife did for this man? My wife baked him brownies. Nothing was in those brownies except for what was supposed to be in those brownies. <laughs> Can't say what he did afterwards. But she bakes some brownies, takes them over to the house and says, I'm so sorry that we got in your yard. I was not there when she did that. Now, had he opened the door, I assure you, I assure you, it would have been a very ugly interaction. And I was ready to exact upon him what he had done to my kids. And if it might have led to something physical, it might have led to something physical. I had my bat. Judith. Didn't return evil for evil. She did what was right in the eyes of everybody. She, like, who can argue with brownies? If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, if it is possible, which means we ought to be making every effort we possibly can, exhaust all means that we can in order to live at peace with others. Not a token effort that says, well, they didn't really want it after all. You know, it's nothing I can do. We don't have the same belief systems. Make every effort, if at all possible, as much as it depends on you. So in other words, Paul is saying, take personal responsibility. You cannot control 
their response is you can't force them to live at peace with you. But what you can do is make every effort on your end to remove all obstacles that you can. And understand some people just aren't going to want it. It's okay. Some folks may just never want to live at peace with you. That's okay. God doesn't hold you responsible for that. God holds us responsible for making every effort, every reasonable effort. Not to let you judge what is reasonable and what is not. I know there's an extreme on either end of that. There's an extreme that says I've made very little effort and there's, a, there's a, a, an extreme over here that says I've just given up far too much. And, and I trust the Holy Spirit to let you know where that, where that is in there. Make every effort to live at peace. And notice again, he says, with everybody. He's not just talking about those that are inside the walls of your home, even though sometimes those are the most difficult folks to live at peace with. Not just those in your neighborhood, not just those in your inner circle, those that you like being around, those that you want to reconcile with. He says, live at peace with everybody. Make every effort to live at peace with everybody. Can I, can I just say this? As Christians, followers of Jesus, those connected to God, sent by God to bless the world, we are free to disagree. Living at peace does not mean that we agree on everything. We are free to disagree. What we are not free to do is to be disrespectful in our disagreements. So today, if you belong to a red party, be respectful of the blue party. You don't have to agree with a single thing. But as a follower of Jesus, you are bound to show honor and respect to all and to do everything you can, as far as it depends on you, to live at peace. You don't have to agree. If you're a part of a blue party, do everything within your power to live respectfully and at peace with those in a red party. You don't have to agree. You don't have to see government the same way. But if you both want to have the title follower of Jesus and you choose to ignore selectively passages like this, then you may want to check whether or not you really do belong to Jesus. Because if your politics are more important than your theology, you have a huge problem. As much as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Don't have to agree, but seek peace. Do not take revenge, my friends, but rather leave room for God's wrath. When he says that we are not to take revenge, it just means that, again, which is the most natural thing in the world for us to do. When we are wronged, we now go to seek to take out revenge upon them. He's quoting in here from Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 35. He says that God says, it is mine to avenge and I will repay. Now, what's Paul really getting at in the heart behind this? 
I think what he's getting at is don't take revenge in the sense of that you're trying to become the arbiter, you're trying to become the judge, you're trying to sit on the place where God sits. Leave room for God to do his work. Trust that the Holy Spirit can come in and move and convict and stir. Trust that God can stop people dead in their tracks. So like one dude who was a murderer of Christians, he sort of made that his full-time job. He liked doing that. He would do it. He's, he's holding the clothes of the first guy that was ever martyred in the scriptures. And then this huge light shines on him. And then this voice from heaven calls out, why are you persecuting me? And the Holy Spirit had the ability to change his heart from the inside. So he goes from a Christian killer to a Christian maker. Leave room for God's wrath. Let God come in and do what it is that he's going to do when he's going to do it. Now get this. God also happens to know the full measure of punishment that's needed, discipline that's needed, whereas you and I typically don't. One of the harder things for me to discern when I was uh, younger with our kids, uh, back when, um, yes, we spanked our children. When, when I spanked, one of the hard things for me to do was to figure out, well, how hard do I spank and how long do I spank? I mean, I didn't want to just say, well, you know, I'm just going to spank until I get tired. I mean, one kid I wanted to do that with, but I... <laughs> God knows exactly what needs to occur in this person's life, and I don't. Now, again, it doesn't mean that the civil government doesn't carry out laws that are spelled out. I'm all for that. Yes, let God handle the vengeance side of the equation. Us, leave room for God. Meaning, don't try to sit on his throne. Don't try to take out on all these who are persecuting you. Just don't worry about it. Let God do it in his timing and his way. Now, please hear this because this is what gets very, very frustrating for me. Notice it says, I will repay, says the Lord. This is the promise. I will repay them. In other words, I will take out on them what is needed. And God will sometimes do that in their own personal lives. And it might not even happen in this lifetime. It might not happen until after their life is done. But God might also take out his wrath and vengeance upon his son for this person when he forgives them of all of their sins. And this is what Paul is saying. This is what I'm holding out for. Paul said, I want those who persecute me I want them to come to faith in Jesus Christ. Why? Because I know what it's like to be the persecutor. I know what it's like to stare into the eyes of someone when I'm getting ready to kill them. I know what it's like to have this power trip. I know what it's like in my zeal to go after the wrong thing. I know what it's like to oppose God. And I know what it's like for God to stop me dead in my tracks. And for some reason, for him to pour out all of his wrath, not on me, which I deserve, but rather on his son, and now I want everyone else to see this, and so I'm holding out. Please, church, hold out. Pray. Pray for those who persecute you. Bless, don't curse. God might just not cause the person or group or whatever that is bringing persecution to you. He might just not ever punish them in this lifetime. So leave room, though. On the contrary, what it is that we are to, he says a couple things here. You're hung, uh, if he's uh, hungry, feed him, thirsty, give him something. It just means meet the physical needs of them. 
meet physical needs. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Uh, I will walk you through all the various ways we can interpret this. I think the, the best way for us to see this um, is that the natural form of shame uh, will come upon them when something they are doing that is, um, when something we would be doing is so good, um, when, when it's revealed in them. I mean, they'll be ashamed of what they're doing because of our response. Now, this is where he closes. It's a summary. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Jesus, while on the cross, made a statement that was um, really bizarre. And he said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Now, who was he referring to? Theologians have debated this for, for many, many years. Was Jesus referring to some specific individuals at that time? Was he referring to a more general group? I don't know that we can know for sure what the answer is. I tend to think that Jesus was indeed referring to the Romans who were carrying out the crucifixion. But I also think his words were meant to go throughout all of time. When Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, I don't think he was just saying in a cursory way, you know, Lord, just sort of overlook what it is. I think he was saying, Father, would you forgive them? Remove their sin as far as the east is from the west. They have no idea what it is that they're doing. Not, not really. They're deceived by the evil one and their own flesh going off in a direction. Enemies of yours, but God, I'm asking that you would forgive them. And he's saying this while he's being mocked, beaten, spit upon, etc., hanging on a cross. And Paul is saying followers of Jesus follow Jesus. And we don't follow Jesus just in things like the Sermon on the Mount where we get to give some pretty good word pictures and stories and some explanation of what the scriptures say. We follow Jesus in a man who was persecuted who took the words literally from God about, about Abraham and decided to bless the world, even though he was being persecuted by the world. I think Leon Morris captures this really, really well. Paul is referring to the change in the enemy which deeds of love affect. We should use deeds of love to turn the enemy into a friend. I'm not looking primarily to turn my enemy into my friend. It is my prayer that God would turn my enemy into his friend. His enemy into his friend. And if I'm going to have a relationship with my persecutors, so be it. If not, that's okay. Because I'm going to do whatever I can. There's only so much that I can do. So after these guys start pushing and, and shoving, I end up getting shoved into an aisle that was there. And then so this commotion begins to go. And, and while I'm there, I'm just overcome with emotion for these particular individuals. And one of the only times in my life that I think I really did have the Holy Spirit open up my eyes spiritually to be able to see into someone's soul. Hasn't happened to me before. Hasn't happened since. And I just got a picture Maybe it is what happened. Maybe it's not. I, I don't know. I got a picture in my head of what these guys might have gone through in life. And it was hell on earth. And I just had a sense right there on the spot that this battle was not really about some dude communicating to 
college students. This was a cosmic battle that was taking place. And they had a hatred of all the things that had happened to them in their lifetime. And they were taking it out on a person associated with God because they're blaming God for all of their problems. And I just prayed. And they punched. And I prayed. And they punched. And the crowd began to gather around. And the crowd, for whatever mysterious reason would be, began to pray. They didn't intervene. And what probably was about 35 or 40 seconds seemed like what could have been a couple of hours. And then two college kids, for no particular reason, in a moment's notice, dropped to their knees. And began to weep like babies. And I was a little bruised. I wasn't bloodied. My ego was hurt a little bit. But I saw something. God had opened my eyes to see something. And I just walked them through the gospel. Those two guys got plugged into a church. One of those guys became a youth minister. The other died last year with cancer. And several of us gathered at his funeral. And person after person after person who had gathered that funeral gathered to share. I came to faith through him. (laughs) Do you understand? It may have very little to do with you. God wants to use the people of God, to influence some of the people of the world. Some of the people of the world, they want to harass you. Big deal. Follow Jesus. Jesus.